U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale and the XO is not able to be here with us. He's busy getting flogged underneath the keel. So instead I am joined with lawyer and foreign policy expert, Sean Nierski. And he is here to talk to us about his new book, We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus. So welcome, Sean. It's nice to have you. Thank you for having me aboard. So you are here to talk about your new book. So why won't we just jump into it? So from what I noticed when I went through it, it had a theme of the Monroe Doctrine. There we go. So can you provide a overview of the Monroe Doctrine and its significance? Because, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people like me have never heard of the dang thing. Yeah, well, it's one of those terms that I think is, you know, more commonly found on AP, you know, U.S. history tests than it is in sort of modern uh, parlance. But uh, it ends up being actually quite important to the history of the United States. Um, and the story actually, I think, begins with the founding of the country. Um, and one of the things that I think Americans fail to appreciate, given just how powerful we are today, is that when this country was founded, it really was in an incredibly precarious uh, position. You know, there were 13 colonies they are hanging to the edge of the eastern seaboard. And wherever else you looked across the continent, it was, you know, great powers from Europe, uh, all of which had relatively hostile intentions towards the United States and who would have in a lot of ways been happy to wipe it off the map at the first opportunity. Um, and so the first, you know, few decades of the, the country's existence, uh, the uh, American leaders tried to follow George Washington's famous advice um, in his farewell speech of essentially, you know, taking a sort of isolationist tact and basically avoiding getting embroiled into any conflicts with the great powers. Uh, this ended up being very difficult. And so we ended up first in a quasi war with France and then a real war with uh, Great Britain in 1812. Um, and so it just sort of underscored, I think, the dangers of the position that we were in. But all this starts to change during the 1810s and especially the early 1820s. Uh, when all of the, not all of the other, but most of the other colonies in the hemisphere end up throwing off Spanish and Portuguese, the, the colonial masters. And so all of a sudden, the rest of the hemisphere, or at least large chunks of it, earn their independence. And you have essentially Latin American states, you know, ranging from everything from Chile, uh, Chile and Argentina all the way up to Mexico, right? And so for the United States, this is a game changer because for the first time, it really means that we're no longer in immediate danger uh, of being invaded by our neighbors. Uh, and in fact, those neighbors are much weaker than we are. And so the risk, however, is that Europe is basically going to take advantage of those Latin American states' weakness and come back into the hemisphere and essentially recolonize those uh, colonies. And this all culminates in this moment in 1823, where it looks as if there's this alliance of uh, monarchies in Europe, Russia, Prussia, and Austria, um, that have formed something called the Holy Alliance, and it's dedicated to banishing, you know, secularism and stomping out democracy and republicanism. And there's this real fear among American leaders that it's about to descend on the hemisphere uh, and help Spain and Portugal uh, reconquer all their lost colonies. And the United States just cannot let that happen. And so President Monroe, in his State of the Union message, basically goes to Congress and says, listen, we are uh, declaring that we, as, your, uh, as Americans, we're not going to cross the ocean. We're not going to interfere with Europe's business or anything like that. We're not going to interfere with any colonies that Europe may have left in the hemisphere. But we 
want to make it very, very clear that we will not tolerate Europe coming back in and trying to recolonize any parts of the hemisphere or to essentially take over any of these countries, you know, by extending uh, uh, political influence uh, from Europe. And so that's when the Monroe Doctrine's uh, born. And it really, for the next 150 years, it is the North Star of American grand strategy. I think until you get to the Cold War, it is literally the most important thing going on in American foreign policy. Um, essentially, it's the containment strategy of its day. So to dumb it down for, you know, people like me, it's you stay in your hemisphere and we'll stay in ours. And exactly. that's just an announcement to the world. Exactly. It's this giant, you know, keep out sign in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and, you know, for the first uh, few decades, uh, the U.S. basically has just no capability to enforce it. Um, you know, by the time from 1823 to roughly, you know, the Civil War, uh, the U.S. I mean, Navy is not much to speak of and certainly can't really go up against kind of European forces. Um, and frankly, you know, the U.S. is just much more interested from a security perspective in filling out the rest of the continent. So expanding to the West, settling, you know, the Louisiana Purchase and then there's the Mexican-American War. And so there's a lot of stuff going on sort of, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say domestically because technically at this point, parts of the continent weren't yet part of the United States, but it's all sort of continental focused. And so it doesn't really have the chance to do much about these European incursions that are happening elsewhere in the hemisphere. But that all basically starts to change with the Civil War. And that's uh, essentially where, where my book starts. So how would you say that this would have, this shaped U.S. foreign policy? Well, so... Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, the Monroe Doctrine was sort of the great, it, it was a response to what Americans saw as the greatest national security threat. As I mentioned before, you know, all of the independent states of the Western Hemisphere weren't a real threat to the United States in any sort of material way. There was never really a risk that Mexico was going to invade and, you know, conquer the United States. And there's certainly no risk that Guatemala or, you know, Argentina or anything like any other country is going to do that. And so from the American perspective, the only real threat, the only real powers that have the ability to kind of harm it are the European great powers. And, you know, you saw that in the War of 1812, where the British burned down, you know, much of Washington, D.C. Um, and you'll see it again kind of recurring at other points in American history where these foreign, these powers in Europe um, have these massive military establishments. They, they have these massive navies and they have these massive armies. And there's this real concern that uh, it's those powers that are basically going to come in and hurt the United States. But the thing that American policymakers realize is that a direct threat or a direct attack or invasion on the United States is relatively unlikely for a variety of reasons. And so instead, the concern that Americans have is that Europe is going to come in indirectly through the Americans' neighbors. And so, as I mentioned before, there's this threat in 1823, or at least this perceived threat of Europe uh, recolonizing the Latin American states. In one form or another, that's basically the same concern that Americans have for the next 150 years, that Europe, that some power in Europe is going to come in and it's going to either explicitly colonize a Latin American country or kind of take over implicitly in a way that eventually leads to European military forces in being concentrated in really high numbers in the Western Hemisphere, which in turn will directly affect American security. And so that's sort of the, the lens through which Americans uh, are thinking about this problem. And you see this sort of, you know, I think there's a bit of a debate inside the United States of how real this problem is, but that debate ends up being settled during the uh, Civil War because, you know, most Americans, I think, were obviously taught about, you know, the battlefields of Antietam and Gettysburg and all that. 
But I think sometimes there's uh, not as much attention paid to what was happening outside the United States, the sort of foreign policy of the Civil War. And one of the really remarkable things is that the European great powers saw the United States tearing itself apart and basically said, excellent, this is our opportunity. You know, we have been concerned about this rising power across the ocean. Now is our chance to sort of really, you know, uh, kind of uh, correct the, the, uh, the balance of power in our favor. And so kind of most, uh, most, I, I think that the, the most direct affront is France, which invades and occupies all of Mexico during the Civil War. And the timing is not a coincidence. The French emperor, Emperor Napoleon III, talks to his advisors and he's like, basically, I've been wanting to do this for a while, but now that the North and the South are at each other's throats, like this is the time to go in. And so France occupies all of Mexico, Spain recolonizes the Dominican Republic, and all of this is sort of seen as just like the entry point, right? I mean, France has this idea that once it's pacified Mexico, it's going to kind of extend its monarchical system all the way down south through the rest of Latin America. And Americans understandably go ballistic when they learn about, you know, when they hear about this and they learn about this. And I think one of the remarkable things uh, I, I realized in the course of my research is that even in the middle of the Civil War, you're talking, you know, 1863, 1864, in both the South and the North, there's like these huge domestic constituencies that are basically saying, forget the Civil War. Let's just put a pause on this and like take care of France, because that is in so many ways a bigger problem than like what we're actually arguing about. Um, now, it doesn't obviously happen that way, but there is this, uh, you know, sense that this is a massive threat. And, you know, once the Civil War concludes, you know, in 1865, the North immediately rushes 50,000 troops down to the border uh, of, with Mexico and basically is like ready to invade Mexico to kick the French out and, and go to war uh, with France, um, which, again, is just this like remarkable moment. Right. I mean, you're you've just finished the most bloody uh, and kind of uh, exhausting war that the United States has ever fought. And three months later, you're ready to go to war with, at that point, what is the greatest power in, in the world. Um, and I think it just speaks to, to the, the depth of feeling that the United States and, and American, uh, both American leaders and the American public had about keeping Europe out of the hemisphere. So in, to keep with the, the theme of this podcast, what ways did the U.S. Navy play in implementing and upholding the principles of the Monroe Doctrine and keep this? Hemispheres separate. Yeah, so I think it ended up um, playing an important role in, I guess, two ways. Uh, the most important one was as sort of the ultimate backstop in case Europe did decide to cross the ocean. And so um, you see this uh, in a couple different kind of crises that characterize the next few decades. I mean, I guess it's worth saying that after the Civil War, for a variety of reasons, it looked like the threat from Europe was receding and, uh, you know, due to kind of budget constraints and other concerns domestically, uh, the U.S. basically lets the Navy just fall to pieces, right? And so by the early 1880s, the U.S. Navy is an international joke. Um, Oscar Wilde, in, his, uh, uh, in one of his books, uh, you know, has, uh, has one of his protagonists talking to a ghost and saying, you know, you, um, uh, well, you wouldn't want to come to the United States. We don't have any ruins or any curiosities. And the ghost responds, no ruins, no curiosities. You have your Navy and your manners. And it's just this like, you know, literally an international punchline. Um, but starting in the kind of 1870s and picking up steam over the next couple of decades, uh, Europe starts embarking on what's called the second age of imperialism. 
And this is basically just this massive colonial effort that rivals even the first age, which was, you know, the age of Columbus and all that. And, you know, from 1870 to 1910, uh, Great Britain, France, and Germany, they end up colonizing over 9 million square miles, which is roughly twice the size of Europe itself. And so if you've heard of the scramble for Africa, if you've heard of, you know, China, uh, kind of the, you know, the opium wars and the century of humiliation, all of that is happening at this time. Europe, Asia, and the Middle East are just getting carved apart by the European powers. And so for the United States, there's this like massive concern, as I mentioned before, that, you're, that the Western Hemisphere is going to be next. And the Navy ends up being seen as the sort of the, the ultimate backstop against that happening. And so starting in the early 1880s, you have this naval buildup that basically continues more or less unabated for the next 40 years through the end of World War I. Um, as the U.S. continues to modernize in an effort to keep uh, Europe at bay. And so, you know, for instance, there's this crisis in uh, 1902 and 1903 where Germany and Great Britain launched this uh, intervention against Venezuela. And Theodore Roosevelt basically concentrates every, every single uh, major uh, warship in the Navy in the Caribbean uh, as basically a warning that if anything goes awry, you know, the United States is, is prepared to act. And so... Um, and so the Navy serves that role first and foremost, but the role, the Navy also serves a sort of interesting secondary role, which I don't think anyone had sort of intended for it to serve initially. Uh, and that's the role of sort of bullying the United States' neighbors. Um, one of the kind of things I tried to explain in this book is why is it as the United States rose that it ended up being so aggressive and expansionist towards its neighbors? Uh, and this is not like you know, an exaggeration uh, from like 1898 to, you know, the end of World War One, uh, we are invading uh, or using force against one of our neighbors, an average of almost twice a year. Um, and so it's a, just the streak of interventionism with really little precedent uh, kind of in any other point in American history, or at least um, nothing quite rivals it. And the Navy obviously is the is the edge of the or the tip of the spear for that. Uh, given that most of our interventions are happening in the Caribbean or, you know, Central America. And um, it's not a role that the U.S. Navy, I think, was built to serve. I mean, most of the buildup at this point is focused on battleships, you know, dreadnought-class vessels, that sort of thing. Um, but the the problem that the United States uh, kind of ends up facing is that it's really worried about Europe coming into the hemisphere. But a lot of its neighbors are incredibly weak and incredibly unstable. And they're, you know, just completely wrecked by civil war, by revolution, their finances are a mess. And so they present this really tempting opportunity for European expansion. And so the U.S. basically decides that what it needs to do to preserve its own security is to stabilize its neighbor. And the way it decides to do that is uh, first kind of through an indirect way, through trade and, you know, diplomacy and all that. But over time, it gets drawn into kind of using more and more aggressive and invasive methods of stabilization. And so ultimately, as I mentioned, there's this like two decade streak of just straight up, you know, invading and occupying a lot of these places, uh, essentially as an effort first and foremost, just to keep Europe out. Um, and so it's a little bit of, um, you know, a, a situation where, you know, to prevent Europe from expanding into the Caribbean, the United States decides it has to expand into the Caribbean first. Um, and the Navy, as I said, kind of ends up playing a pretty critical role in that sort of gunboat diplomacy. Yeah, when I was going through the, the those sections, which is quite quite a uh, big chunk of of the of the book, it seemed like that yeah they tried first to 
bump up the economies to try to get them to be stable. Then when they found out that wasn't happening, they were like, well, maybe it's because of the leadership. So let's start changing out their leaders, <laughs> a lot of that. And also saying, well, fine, then we'll just run your economy. Yeah. Well, and this is, you know, uh, this all, I, I think Americans went into this with a sort of remarkable naivete um, that I think was born of a, of a lot of different things. But, you know, their, their view initially was that, uh, and kind of throughout was that, well, the reason these governments are so unstable is because of this one, whatever it is, this one easy problem. And if we just fix this, then everything will be fine, right? And so, you know, Theodore Roosevelt has this um, uh, famous speech where he talks about the United States acting as an international policeman. And, you know, I think his idea is basically that the U.S. is just going to, you know, uh, swing its little bat around and occasionally, you know, smack a country on the head if it's misbehaving. And that's good going to be good enough to sort of keep everyone, uh, you know, in check and, and, and behaving well. The problem is that, you know, that just doesn't work and the U.S. gets drawn more and more in. And it turns out you don't have to just be a policeman. You also have to be a sanitation worker. You also have to be, you know, a judge. You have to be, a you know, uh, a health worker. And there's just like, you know, an economist. I mean, and so the U.S. ends up eventually just like getting drawn into these sometimes decade long occupations because it just can't figure out any other way in which to stabilize its neighbors. Was there any thought of just, you know, bringing them into the fold permanently? Yeah. So it's a great question because especially if you look up to the, at the history of the country up through like 1900, you know, annexation was kind of our, our thing, right? I mean, the U S went from being these 13 colonies on the edge of the seaboard to like taking over an entire continent. Um, but for various reasons that basically ends in, you know, 1899 with one important exception. Uh, and there's a lot of different reasons for it, but most of them relate to kind of the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. And so in the Spanish-American War, you know, we have this resounding uh, victory over Spain. And at the end of the war, for reasons we can discuss, we end up annexing the Philippines and Puerto Rico, along with Guam, a few other minor islands, um, and then it, uh, kind of installing a protectorate over Cuba. And the Philippines, uh, the annexation of the Philippines ends up being a disaster. Um, at the time it had a good amount of support, but that support quickly vanishes for a variety of reasons. But one of the most important is that the Filipinos just launched this insurgency that the U S eventually wins, but it's an incredibly dirty war. Um, you know, a lot of the U S soldiers are incredibly racist. They're doing extremely awful things. I mean, this is where, uh, like the early precursor to waterboarding gets introduced and used quite frequently. Um, there's torture, extrajudicial killing. I mean, it's just. It's an absolute mess, right? Um, and so even the U.S. kind of, you know, wins that, uh, wins that uh, war. It, it's just such a draining experience uh, for, the, for the army, but also for the country as a whole, that there's this, like, deep sense that the U.S. shouldn't be doing this again. Um, the other half of the picture, though, and one of the most important reasons that annexation just doesn't end up getting used is, frankly, American racism. Uh, and I think a lot of people sort of had the misconception that, uh, the United States in part was bullying its neighbors a lot because it had this sort of like white man's burden kind of understanding of its obligations. But the truth is almost exactly the opposite, which is that, um, for, for self-proclaimed anti-imperialists, uh, racism was probably the most powerful argument in their quiver, right? You know, every time there was this argument of like, well, we should annex the Philippines, we should annex Cuba, we should annex any of these islands. The um, anti-imperialists would immediately say, are you kidding me? Do you really want to bring all these non-white people into the body politic? 
And for Americans of the day in both the North and South, that was an incredibly important argument. And so it didn't always work. You know, Hawaii still got annexed. Uh, the Philippines still got annexed. But in places like Cuba and the Dominican Republic, where they're at various points in American history, where was this really powerful annexationist impulse, that racism was probably the most important factor that prevented um, those places from getting swallowed up uh, permanently. So I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, when, you know, we finally did pull out of all those countries, you know, because we realized, hey, we're actually just screwing things up even more. We just need to step back and, you know, let them decide what they want to do. How long were they in total disarray if they ever even recovered? You know, I mean, we've seen a modern example of that in, in Afghanistan. Yeah, so it, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, in a lot of places, um, I think generally speaking, well, I, I shouldn't say that. So in some places, you know, our withdrawal was about as successful as our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, to give you one example, we sent Marines into Nicaragua, um, basically starting in 1910. Uh, but we had a kind of significant garrison in the, in the capital for, I think, permanently since 1912, so I think about 1925. And in the 1920s, you really see this kind of broader retrenchment. Americans are trying to get out of these, you know, these... Um, these wars and, and, and all this. And so in 1925, the state department decides that it wants to bring the Marines home. And so they kind of evacuate the, the Nicaraguan capital. And this seems like a major success for all of like three weeks, because three weeks later, um, there's a coup and, you know, immediately the country sort of descends into a new bout of civil war. And so the Marines end up having to come back again and we end up occupying all of Nicaragua. Uh, from like 1927 through early 1930s. And so there really is this kind of difficulty where, you know, on the one hand, we don't want our neighbors to be unstable. But on the other hand, the second we pull out, they seem to become even more unstable than before we left. Um, it, in other cases, though, what ends up happening is that when the U.S. is there uh, and, you know, one large part of its stabilization project in many of these occupations is to uh, build up what's called a constabulary, which is sort of like a quasi-police, quasi-military force. The, the idea is that these forces are going to uh, protect the, you know, lawfully elected government and act in a sort of, you know, outside of politics, totally neutral way. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, we can say that that just didn't pan out at all. And so what ends up happening is that in a lot of these countries, the U.S. creates this incredibly powerful, well-organized armed force and it stamps out sort of competing centers of power. And then when the U.S. leaves, it leaves, you know, governments that are elected, that nominally represent the will of the people, but that are just no match for these armed forces that the, you know, U U.S. has kind of um, uh, grown up in its midst. And so in particular, in sort of the late 1920s, like through the 1930s, when the U.S. is kind of withdrawing from a lot of these countries, what you end up seeing is the rise of these kind of dictators, many of whom end up controlling their countries, you know, for decades on end. And so in Nicaragua, for instance, as I mentioned, we finally end up withdrawing, I believe, in 1932, 1933. Um, uh, I guess it would be 1933. And uh, there is a lawfully elected government, and it lasts a few years, but eventually the head of the National Guard ends up taking over, uh, Somoza, and he, you know, basically runs the country along with the rest of his family until, you know, he's overthrown in the 1970s. And so that ends up being, you know, kind of one of many tragic uh, consequences of, of our uh, involvement in, in a lot of these countries' uh, internal affairs. 
So let's go to the other side of the pond. How are the other European powers taking all of this? So uh, I would say they, they took it with a sort of mixed perspective. Um, on the one hand, you know, the, the, the United States essentially was approaching the European powers and offering them a deal, which was, if you stay out of the hemisphere, we'll keep order on your behalf. So, you know, a lot of these European interventions were launched because Europe wanted to, let's say, collect on a debt or wanted to, you know, keep uh, its citizens safe. And, you know, the local government wasn't doing a good job. And so the, the idea was that by acting as the policeman of the Western Hemisphere, the United States would essentially serve those functions, keep European property, keep European lives safe. And as a result, Europe wouldn't need to, wouldn't have a good reason to intervene. And so that was the, the bargain in a sense. And from Europe's perspective, that was a pretty good bargain, right? You know, it didn't necessarily have, uh, taking over the Western Hemisphere was not a high priority for any European nation, or at least it was a far lower priority than kind of other things. And so having the U.S. sort of protect, you know, your citizens' lives, your citizens' property seemed like a pretty good idea. Um, on the other hand, though, there is this sort of expansion of European, of American influence and in a way that ends up squeezing out European interests. And so you see this in the Taft administration in particular. There's this policy called dollar diplomacy, where one of the kind of important aspects of that policy is that the uh, United States government helps a lot of these countries refinance these like massive loans that they have to European creditors, helps refinance them through American banks. And the idea is essentially you want to start eliminating and squeezing Europe's uh, stake out of the hemisphere, because if Europe doesn't have a reason, doesn't have an economic stake, doesn't have a political stake, then it doesn't have any reason to sort of intervene. And therefore, you know, American security is better protected. Um, and Europe, frankly, is obviously less than happy about this in a lot of ways. But given the sort of timing and with, you know, all the tensions on the continent and the kind of, you know, wor World War One being just around the corner, there's not a lot that the Europe can do. And so over time, what you sort of see is this kind of gradual um, diminishment of, of Europe's interests. And then once World War I happens, I mean, that just accelerates in a major way, right? Because for one thing, like German U-boats are cutting basically all of the allies links with the hemisphere. And, you know, the allies in turn are busy sort of directing all of the resources against Germany rather than, you know, trying to trade with Latin America. And so during World War I, like the U.S. proportion of trade and things like that with, with the hemisphere just goes through the roof. And by the end of the war, it's just absolutely clear that Europe has no chance of really making a comeback in the hemisphere at all, at least for the foreseeable future. The dollar diplomacy reminds me that when these countries did default on their loans, which, you know, happened quite, quite often that quite they bit. would actually send their military in to collect that debt. Yeah. Well, and one of the, I think one of the misconceptions you sometimes hear about U.S. foreign policy is that we did the same thing. And that's, I think, just not true. Um, the U.S. very early on made it clear that, you know, if you're, you're, uh, if you're a business and you, you know, your investment goes south or you lose, um, you know, or the, or, or some Latin American country owes you money you know, we're not going to use our military forces to enforce that in the same way that the Europeans will. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think the confusion is a little bit understandable because we did end up sort of trying to create this order where Latin American countries were living up to their obligations, not because we cared in the first instance whether, you know, an American creditor or a European creditor got its money, 
but because we just didn't want to give European powers in particular the pretext to intervene. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it was a wild time in terms of what international law allowed, or at least what the great powers said it allowed. Um, and so you actually see the United States uh, calling these conferences in, in Europe and sort of participating in them actively, trying to change international law precisely so it forbids this sort of thing. Um, because, uh, again, the, the U.S. is sort of interested in removing any pretext for European intervention in the hemisphere. So you brought us to World War I now. So how did the Monroe policy adapt or change to post-World War I? Yeah, so, um, so the entire idea of the Monroe Doctrine, I mean, it, so President Monroe had promised that the U.S. wasn't going to interfere with existing European colonies. Um, and in a sense, I think he was crossing his fingers behind his back. I mean, it was true, certainly, that he didn't, the U.S. didn't have the capacity to do that at the time he made his announcement. But the sort of implicit idea behind the Monroe Doctrine was you know, the United States is the most powerful state in the Western Hemisphere, at least compared to all the other independent states. The only real threat is are these European outposts. And so, you know, for the U.S. to be secure, we need to become what uh, political scientists like to call a regional hegemon, which is essentially the uh, a situation where the only great power in a uh, particular geographic area is, is, you know, that there is only one great power. And so the, in this case, that would be the United States. and by the end of World War I, you basically, the U.S. has achieved that objective, right? I mean, there's just no realistic prospect that any power anywhere else in the world can put up a serious fight against the United States in the Western Hemisphere. And um, in a lot of ways, that sort of means that the Monroe Doctrine has, you know, accomplished its goal. And so what you see over the next uh, decade and a half is essentially this sort of, as I mentioned, this withdrawal of American influence. The U.S., you know, basically starts pulling back from all these countries, stop, you know, stops worrying about Euro European intervention, stops worrying about whether these countries are stable or not, because even if they're unstable, it just doesn't matter anymore. There's not much that Europe can do about it that really presents a threat. Um, this isn't, you know, obviously a permanent state of affairs, because in, in the uh, mid-1930s, um, uh, Americans uh, start becoming worried about the rise of a new great power uh, in Europe, and that's, of course, Nazi Germany and, um, and Imperial Japan to a lesser extent. And so in the late 1930s, you sort of have this reversal of the trend where FDR just starts becoming incredibly concerned about the risk that uh, Hitler's going to you know, take over all of Europe and then use Africa as a jumping off point to attack South America and then work you know, his way up the Western Hemisphere towards the United States. Um, and we look at World War II kind of through, I think, a European-centric lens, in part because after World War II, you know, American foreign policy becomes really oriented at Europe and the Cold War with the Soviet Union and all that. But if, you know, the actual, like, thinking and the, the sort of calculations that FDR and his cabinet were making were all in terms of the Western Hemisphere right up until entry into World War uh, II. There was just this incredible concern of, like, how do we maintain the Monroe Doctrine? Um, in, in, in light of the, the Nazi threat. And you have FDR kind of in these internal cabinet meetings telling you know, them, like, we have to go whole hog on the Monroe Doctrine, right? We have to protect the hemisphere against the Nazi threat. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's sort of the dynamic that develops until we do, uh, until FDR eventually just recognizes that if we're really worried about Nazi Germany coming into the hemisphere, our options are either wait until they get here and for various reasons, FDR thinks that's just not going to be a good idea, 
or we can go to Europe now and help Great Britain and the Soviet Union basically beat uh, Nazi Germany in Europe. And that, that for a variety of reasons, is going to be a safer bet for us. Um, and that's obviously the what ends up happening. Um, and then it's only in the aftermath of World War II that the U.S. really starts to focus on Europe as sort of the primary region for its security. Right. So they didn't necessarily want to jump into the fight because we still liked our, you know, our separatist attitude. Mm-hmm. but they also did not want to bring it. So they, that's what the whole lend lease and everything like that started, you know, shipping supplies pulled us out of the great depression. Yep. And we actually ended up being the only country to actually profit off of the war. By quite a bit, actually. Um, and again, I mean, one of the things, one of the points I make in the book is that um, you, you can't really understand the rise of the United States as the global superpower that it is today without understanding that all, all of that depends on it being a regional hegemon, right? Because in World War One, in World War Two, you see the same thing again and again, which is that the other great powers are just tearing themselves to shreds. Um, you know, they're burning, they're bleeding, all of this fighting is happening on their territory. Uh, and in both wars, the U.S., doesn't have to worry about that, right? I mean, you know, the U.S. suffers tremendous casualties in both wars, but for the most part, it's not, it's on foreign soil, right? And I think that a large part of the reason that's the case is because the U.S. basically managed to carve out the sphere of influence, this this area of the world where it was the only great power, it didn't have to worry about competition, and that allowed the hemisphere to sort of become a springboard from which it could start, you know, intervening in the rest of the world for good or for bad, you know, depending on your perspective. So up until World War II, um, was any of the long-term implications of Monroe doc- Doctrine felt being felt yet? Yeah, well, so um, so the Monroe Doctrine, I mean, in a lot of the, the argument I make towards the end of the book, so I, I sort of finish with the dawn of the Cold War. Um, one of the points I make is that on one level, the Cold War sort of saw the Monroe Doctrine become obsolete because the whole idea of the Monroe Doctrine was, look, as long as we can keep the other great powers on the other side of the ocean, we're going to be safe. And the U.S. achieves that at the end of World War II. But, you know, we're entering an era of ICBMs and kind of nuclear submarines and sort of technology that just makes it incredibly easy to project uh, force in a way that wasn't necessarily the case before. And so the Monroe Doctrine's kind of hemispheric focus feels, I think, very small-minded to most Americans at that point. Um, and so the U S for that, and for a variety of other reasons, ends up taking a bit of a more, not a bit more, uh, it takes on a majorly kind of new global role at the end of world war II. Um, but part of the problem too, is that, you know, at the end of world war II, like all of Europe is essentially lying in ruins except for the Soviet union. And so there's this real sense among Americans that if we don't go to you know, Western Europe's aid, if we don't do the Marshall Plan, if we don't do, you know, station our forces there in NATO, you know, in NATO and kind of other uh, alliances, we're going to uh, face a situation where the Soviet Union, the Red Army, just steamrolls across the continent uh, and then ends up becoming a regional hegemon in its own right, you know, the only great power in all of Europe. And so the U.S. basically says, we can't let that happen. And so the Cold War, in a lot of ways, I mean, the, the argument that I make is that it's essentially not that different from the Monroe Doctrine. It's just that instead of telling the other great powers that they can't cross the ocean, we're focused on one great power in the Soviet Union. And we're saying that, you know, basically it, it can't cross the Iron Curtain. And so, you know, 
same as during the Cold War, we contained the Soviet Union into kind of its sphere of the world. Uh, the Monroe Doctrine itself, in a lot of ways, was just us containing the old world, uh, you know, away from kind of the new world shores. And so I think there's a lot of continuity. I think there's a lot, you know, the foreign policy of the United States really doesn't change that much other than kind of taking on this new, more global uh, kind of frame. Um, and of course, we never lose interest in, in our hemisphere itself. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think, is a pretty good example of just how touchy the United States still is about great powers sort of coming into to its um, area. Um, but of course, there's other examples too, ranging from funding uh, an insurgency in Nicaragua, getting involved with like death squads across the continent. You know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a continuation of what came before. Um, and so, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, I think, sort of lives on, even though the, the, the exact phrase stops being used kind of in the same way that it used to be. So what have they replaced it with? Well, containment, uh, you know, George Kennan containment and kind of this, uh, the broader framework of sort of keeping Soviet influence uh, contained in a particular area. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it really, there's this moment in, I think, uh, the 70s where Henry Kissinger is testifying uh, in Congress. And there's this young senator named Joe Biden who basically like is listening to Henry Kissinger describe the administration's containment strategy. And at some point he just interrupts Dr. Kissinger and says, you're just talking about a global Monroe doctrine. And, you know, K Kissinger denies it uh, for kind of obvious reasons, but I think that's basically exactly right. I mean, that's what the United States was basically doing at that point. Right. Well, after World War II, when the only real threat in the entire world was the Soviet Union. So naturally that's where we would put our our, our focus because we don't want to have them just take advantage of the war-torn Europe, Europe and just do finish what Hitler started. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, you know, I mentioned before that looking at the kind of sweep of American interventionism in Latin America, um, you know, my point is that a lot of it, I think, was driven by the United States being concerned about these power vacuums developing in its neighbors that presented opportunities for European expansion. That same dynamic, I think, describes a large part of the Cold War. The U.S. is basically worried about these power vacuums, you know, developing first in Europe itself, but then in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, um, and worried that Soviet influence is basically going to kind of sweep into those power vacuums. And so what it ends up doing is, first, it tries to stabilize a lot of these countries kind of from the distance using trade and diplomacy and all the other things we were talking about before. But once again, that doesn't work that well in a lot of cases. And so in a lot of cases, the U.S. ends up being drawn itself into that power vacuum. And, and so you see this kind of massive expansion of American influence. And so that's true, whether it's, you know, the Korean Peninsula, that's Vietnam, that's a lot of the, you know, wars we were fighting in, uh, proxy wars we were fighting in, you know, Africa, Middle East, South Asia. Um, you know, it, it, in a lot of ways, the U.S. is just still, still dealing with the same problem of how do you how do you prevent a rival from expanding into kind of a war-torn, unstable region unless you yourself are willing to expand into that region first? So what we're dealing with now, I guess, could be described as just trying to maintain the status quo to try to keep everybody right where they're at. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, it's funny because throughout most of its uh, history, uh, the United States was what political scientists would call a revisionist power in the sense that it wasn't happy with the status quo, right? It wanted to change things. It wanted to kick Europe out of the Western hemisphere. It wanted to grow until it was so powerful, you know, no other nation could change it or could challenge it. 
of course, now that we've done that, you know, the U.S. has this massive interest in sort of keeping the status quo as it is. Um, and instead, you have powers like Russia and China that have become the revisionist powers because they, of course, sort of don't love it that the U.S. Uh, military kind of alliance and, and oftentimes U.S. military forces are right up on their borders, presenting, you know, a potential threat. Um, but there's a degree of sort of, I think, uh, oftentimes irony, if, if, if not perhaps double standards in the way that the, the way that the U.S. oftentimes talks about this. And so, for instance, in Russia, with respect to both Russia and China, you know, the Biden administration kind of goes out of its way to say over and over again, you know, this is the 21st century. We don't do spheres of influence. We don't, you know, we don't have any uh, limits on the kind of alliances that people can form. If Ukraine wants to join NATO, that's Ukraine's decision, not Russia's, you know, blah, 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 blah. At the very same time we're saying that, number one, it's a little bit ins inconsistent with what we were doing a century ago, which was, in fact, creating a sphere of influence and very much saying what our neighbors could and could not do vis-a-vis -vis Europe. But it's still, you know, even today, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a double standard. Um, you might have seen in the news last week, for instance, um, that uh, the Wall Street Journal broke the story about how China has uh, agreed to give Cuba billions of dollars in exchange for setting up a signal uh, intelligence facility to listen in on American communications uh, in Cuba. And, you know, the story's still developing, so we don't know exactly where this is going to go. But already the, the sort of reaction from much of the political class in the United States is like, are you crazy? Like, how on earth can you do you think you can do this, China? You know, this is this is wildly inappropriate. And again, it's this sense that, like, you know, Cuba is is part of our hemisphere. Like, you're not allowed to do this here. Even though, of course, you know, the United States has its own listing facilities in Asia right off China's borders. And so, um, you know, I, I think the double standard is in a sense defensible from the perspective of American interests. But obviously sort of stepping back, you know, separate from American interests, there is this you know, question of like, is the United States being totally consistent in kind of what it says and what it does? Oh, it's not. <laughs> We're projecting our own sphere of in of influence to try to tell people they can't do it. No, it, no, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to save that right now. It's not. Yeah. And again, you know, I mean, that's not, um, I, I don't mean to be harsh on the United States because I think, you know, every power acts essentially in that way, you know, that it's, it's perfectly happy to be revisionist until it's on top. And then of course it wants to preserve the status quo. So, you know, we're not, we're not any different, uh, than any other power in that respect. Uh, you know, but um, but it does mean that sometimes our rhetoric, I think, to a lot of other nations can come across as being a little bit um, hypocritical. So how do you think this is going to shape into the future with, you know, our modified, I guess, Monroe document <laughs> doctrine? Yeah. Um, so I guess there's two two points that I think are work, worth making about the future. One is specifically about the Monroe doctrine. Um, what you've seen in the last decade or so is that China really is expanding its influence into the Western Hemisphere in a way that I think uh, appropriately gives Americans cause for concern. Some of it is fairly innocuous. I mean, uh, Latin America's trade with China has increased in a fairly significant way. Um, I think that's essentially inevitable given just how much of an economic force China is. Uh, the more concerning part of the story is that China's oftentimes using economic leverage as sort of a way to get uh, to achieve its political and strategic goals. And so 
You see, for instance, Chinese state-owned companies uh, taking control of maritime infrastructure near strategic choke points like the Panama Canal um, or, you know, uh, like the southern tip of uh, South America. Um, you see, for instance, China setting up these space facilities in the region that kind of oftentimes have a dual, you know, civilian military use purpose. Um, and it has more in the Western Hemisphere than any other region of the world. And so there's the sense that China is, you know, actively not only pursuing economic, but also political and military goals in the hemisphere. And I think this latest story with Cuba sort of just, you know, doubles down on that point. And so my suspicion is that as that continues to increase, I think the Monroe Doctrine will probably come, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say it'll come back into vogue, but certainly there'll be more conversation about it. And I think it's some, you know, that Americans are going to become increasingly sort of concerned about this happening. The challenge for the United States is how do you deal with that situation without um, uh, creating a backlash among your neighbors, right? Because you, saying, even saying the phrase of the Monroe Doctrine uh, immediately gets Latin Americans, you know, hair to stand on end for understandable reasons. I mean, from the United States, it's a mixed history at best. From the Latin American perspective, it's basically just a nonstop record of the U.S., you know, you know, invading, launching coups, you know, and, it, and just this very dark history. Uh, that the U.S. doesn't want to necessarily repeat. Um, and so for the U.S., it's this kind of, uh, how do you convince Latin American countries not to let China, you know, come into the hemisphere too much without at the same time feeling like you're threatening them in a way that could then lead them to go to China for protection? So I think that's one of the big challenges. The other point that I wanted to make is that I wrote this book in large part um, because because of China specifically. Uh, there's this kind of truism in among historians that rising powers tend to be aggressive and expansionist, uh, which means that, you know, whenever you have a rising power, you see them picking fights with other great powers, you see them intervening and otherwise meddling in the affairs of their neighbors. And in general, rising powers just really seem to try to dominate greater and greater slices of the world. Um, and that's been true without throughout history. It was certainly true in the case of the United States. And I think it seems to be borne out in the way China is more and more acting in its own region. Um, and I wrote the book in, a, in, in large part because I thought it would be useful to look at the United States as a case study to kind of better understand what are the mechanisms that cause rising powers to act that way. And my conclusion means that there's a significant kind of uh, cause for concern when it comes to China. Um, because the same dynamics that led the United States to be aggressive in its own neighborhood, I think could potentially lead China to do the same. Um, you know, I think China, same as the United States, is very concerned about keeping foreign great power influence at bay. It does not want the United States to expand further in Asia. And to the contrary, it very much wants to cleanse Asia of American influence. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are these uh, parts of its uh, neighborhood that are incredibly unstable that offer the opportunity for American, for an expansion of American influence. And so the, um, so the, you know, I think there's this risk that in a lot of different places, uh, China may end up sort of responding to instability, responding to sort of failed or failing states by trying to kind of move into those power vacuums before the United States can. And I'll give you just like one concrete example to kind of uh, show how close the parallel is in a lot of cases. So after the Spanish-American War, we had promised at the start of the war to give, give Cuba its independence. And we did technically, but before doing so, we imposed something called the Platt Amendment on Cuba, which is essentially this um, 
it, it was this part of the Cuban constitution that basically tied Cuba's hands behind its back in a, in a number of different ways in, in an effort on our part to prevent Cuba from sort of falling within kind of the, the clutches of some, you know, avaricious European power. And one of the, the, the most important part of the Platt Amendment was Article 3, which basically gave the United States the right to intervene in Cuba to, uh, at any point where instability reached a certain kind of point, right? So if, if Cuba's descending into anarchy, the U.S. wanted the right to go in because it was afraid that, you know, if it didn't have that right, some other European power would go in. Uh, the problem is that the Platt Amendment ended up becoming, a, ended up destabilizing Cuba because it acted as this sort of, uh, sort of Damocles that was hang, hanging over Cubans' heads that was a massive incentive for Cuban opposition parties to use any time they wanted to wipe away the governing party. And so this ended up happening in like 1906, where the, um, the moderate party took, uh, basically rigged the 1905 elections in Cuba and sort of held on to power. And so the liberal opposition basically launched this rebellion against the moderates. And from the U.S. perspective, it didn't make any sense. Like, don't they know that if they start a civil war, we're going to intervene and take over the country? But that's exactly what the liberals understood. They knew they were that the U.S. would come in. But from their perspective, it was much better to have the U.S. in charge than to have the moderates in charge. And so they were happy to do it. And so there was this very kind of perverse situation where the U.S. had created this amendment in part to stabilize these countries, but it ended up being used against. Why is this relevant to China? Well, last year, the China signed an agreement, a secret security agreement with the Solomon Islands in which. Uh, it basically agreed that to uh, that it would land military forces and intervene if there was ever a significant risk of sort of instability in the country. It's very, very similar to the Platt Amendment. The only difference is that the Platt Amendment was not conditioned on the um, uh, request or consent of Cubans, whereas the Chinese uh, security agreement seems to be. But in you know, looking at American history, that consent actually was never really the issue. So, like in 1906, for instance, when the um, liberals were rebelling, the moderate uh, government was more than happy to have the United States come in because it thought that the United States would help kind of, you know, squash this rebellion. And so you can see it, you can easily imagine a situation where, you know, the current kind of government of the Solomon Islands wants to hold on to power, it rigs an election, it, you know, does whatever. And the opposition basically says, you know, this is completely unlawful and like launches a revolution, launches a civil war. And the existing government basically says, well, we don't want that to happen. And so they call in China to bring its forces and to sort of squash this rebellion. And suddenly, you know, you have either Chinese occupation or at least like this massive expansion of Chinese uh, military influence in the islands. And so it's, you know, again, none of these hypotheticals are necessarily likely to happen, but it is at least for me interesting to see how uh, closely a lot of Chinese foreign policy today is echoing, you know, both what the United States did a century ago, but also the mistakes it made, and to sort of know where that might kind of lead next. So where do you think it is going to lead? Seeing how it's mirroring, what, what, what does the, in your mind, what does the future hold? So I, I, I would say that uh, it's always dangerous to make predictions, but I do think in a lot of ways history repeats itself or at least rhymes. Um, and based on that, I would say that I would expect China to act aggressively and expansively, uh, expansionistly in its neighborhood, um, not only in places like Taiwan, where I think the threat is sort of real and understood, but also in other places where there's a risk of power vacuums developing in a way that China might feel obligated to kind of fill. And so 
that's going to be everything from, you know, the Korean Peninsula, where potentially a collapse of North Korea uh, would lead to Chinese military intervention, to the West and Afghanistan and kind of other uh, parts of Central Asia, to, you know, the Southeast and places like uh, Burma, where, again, you know, there's, there's a real risk of kind of uh, both serious instability, but also kind of, you know, American influence. And I think China's going to potentially be in a situation where it might feel like it needs to kind of employ military force uh, in order to, you know, protect its interests. So I would say that I'm uh, pretty pessimistic about kind of, um, you know, what China's behavior is likely to look like in the next couple of decades. All right. Well, um, we are coming up to that time. So as we come to a close, is there anything you want to add? Anything you want to say? Uh, not that I can think of. Um, I think, you know, the book, uh, We May Dominate the World, uh, Ambition, Anxiety, and the Rise of the American Colossus. Uh, it's coming out at the end of the month, but you can pre-order it today. And I think, you know, it deals with a lot of the ideas we've been discussing on this podcast, but it also, I think, just tells some, you know, pretty interesting stories about kind of the interventions we launched and, you know, the first times we ever tried to do regime change and things like that with a lot of lessons for today. And so uh, I hope, hope it uh, gets your interest. Well, especially that battle over the Panama Canal. That was very interesting. Yes. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Sean. And uh, go go out and get his book, guys. Uh, I've read through it. It's, it's great. I, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, Dale. Thank you for having me aboard. And, and with that, guys, we're going to wish you fair winds and following seas. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 